Well, you can see in your bulletin, the title of the sermon today is Running Against the Wind. And for those of you who are, who are dated just right, uh, you'll realize that I borrowed it from the uh, poet-theologian Bob Seeger and his Silver Bullet Band. So uh, Dr. Seeger does well to tap into the feeling of a reality we all face in our lives when he sings this. And I'm not going to sing it, I'm just going to say it for all our sakes. Although I do have a little bit of a raspy rumble down in me sometimes. So the years rolled slowly past and I found myself alone, surrounded by strangers I thought were my friends. I found myself further and further from my home. And I guess I lost my way. There were oh so many roads. I was living to run and running to live. Never worried about paying or even how much I owed. Moving eight miles a minute for months at a time, breaking all of the rules that would bend. I began to find myself searching, searching for shelter again and again against the wind. I was running against the wind. Now this isn't our text for the day, so everybody can take a breath. But the poet of our day captures the spirit of where we'll find David. Uh, he, d- he does well to depict the feeling of life at various times and in a multitude of contexts for all of us, which is why it became a number one hit. It's actually his first and maybe only number one album. Well, I think the time comes in most everyone's life when they find themselves working really hard and just going through the day-to-day for long enough that they begin to lose perspective. We start to make quick decisions in life, decisions that we have to make quickly, but decisions that we don't realize at the time carry the weight we come to find out that they do. If you go long enough in the day-to-day, running against the wind, you'll come to find out the friends that you once had are more like strangers. You've not had the time to invest in those relationships the way that you need to. Some of those might even include your spouse or children. And you know, if home is where the heart is, uh, as you're running, you might come to find, as you look back, that you're a long way from the place that you would call home. If you're not careful, you might come to find that your life is characterized by just uh, living to run and running to live. In this context, there are many tendencies we have living in survival mode, and that's the mode that David comes to live in here. In this context of moving eight miles a minute for months at a time, we've become lax in the things that were once so important to us. All of a sudden, we're more willing to break some of the rules we had that formerly we might just allow to bend a little bit under the pressure. The fight or flight mechanism kicks in, And we kind of become dangerous and reckless a little bit, like a caged animal. In this recklessness, we often find ourselves then searching for shelter again and again. We're running against the wind. Well, this is what it feels like to live life as a fugitive, I imagine. (laughs) It's an important qualification there. On the run, in survival mode, living recklessly, seeking shelter sometimes at all costs. 
And our hearts aren't always so revealed. You remember we're talking about a man after God's own heart. Our heart isn't always so revealed in the circumstances we find ourselves in, though sometimes they are. They're oftentimes by our own hand, but oftentimes they're not. I think more than anything, our hearts become revealed in the place that we seek our shelter when we're amidst that storm. And I think that's the place that David's heart, a man after God's own heart, comes to be revealed as well. So I would ask you this question, and this is the one that we would hope to answer today. Where do you take refuge amidst the winds of life? Well, I am continuing the series of David, a man after God's own heart. And he's become a fugitive. Saul has become insanely jealous and has created a story in his mind that David is treasonously, well, I should have changed that word. (laughs) David is seeking to overthrow him. He's become his enemy. Um. And if you remember, Saul and Jonathan, um, I mean, David and Jonathan had made a covenant together. And uh, Jonathan has, in a sense, betrayed his father to, to allow David to escape. And he has told David, go. You need to flee. And so this is where we find David today. Fleeing for his life as a fugitive on the run. And in this fleeing, we find that he's a dangerous and, and sometimes desperate guy who kind of causes some collateral damage along the way. My old mentor, Tom Nelson, used to say this, and I got to try to do it like Tom, so I got to get my glasses down. He had a way of looking at you. He'd go, boys, you'll know what's in a man when he's squeezed. And he'd do something like this here. Tom, Katie. What comes out of you when you get squeezed? (laughs) Well, we're going to see what comes out of David when he gets squeezed. The man after God's own heart. Pray with me as we look at our text. Father God, thank you for your kindness, for your graciousness, for your mercy to us that's new every day. Thank you for your great faithfulness. Thank you that you indeed are our refuge. You indeed are our deliverer, our sanctuary, and our strength in times of trouble. Lord, I pray your word would speak to our hearts and that we would be quick to run to you in all troubles that we find in this life in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 1 Samuel 21, we got a lot of text to cover, so we're going to move really quick, guys, just so you all know. 1 Samuel chapter 21 This is when David takes the consecrated bread at Nob. So that's your first point there in your bulletin. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand, Ahimelech? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. Well, the priest answered David and said, There's no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from the women. David answered the priest and said to him, 
Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy. Though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels be holy? So when they would go out, just to kind of give you an explanation here, because that's some strange things to be saying, uh, part of the cleansing, because the things that they did under the directive of the king, there were cleansing rites that were required within Deuteronomy because they're seen as holy acts. And so what he's assuring him is, yes, we're all clean. We've been cleansed. And by the bread, this bread is the bread of the presence that stood right before the Holy of Holies. So it is holy. And yes, it's, it's on the seventh day, so it's the time that they're exchanging it out anyway. So Ahimelech's going to exchange the old bread for the new bread. He's going to give that to them to eat. He wanted to make sure that they were ritually clean before they ate, though. So just wanted to catch you up to kind of some of the things that were going on there real quick. So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, now, and by the way, the detained before the Lord might have been some ritual that they needed to be doing at that time, so not sure exactly what that is. David said to Ahimelech, Now, is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. David's not a great liar. Uh, the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. So here we have David, and we got a lot of story to cover, so I've tried to give some commentary along the way. But uh, he's in the midst of living life as a fugitive. And uh, what tends to be our first reaction when we're running against the wind is self-preservation, right? And sometimes at any cost. And he does lie to Ahimelech here, but be careful you don't reduce this passage, which is real common. We kind of like to make a moral message out of every single passage in Scripture. But be careful you don't reduce it to something pithy like don't lie or people die. Because that's not exactly what this text is about or these chapters. So uh, there's a lot more going on here. Uh, David's likely lying to preserve Ahimelech's life. Uh, however, the lie isn't really focused on in the text. And it's not focused on later at all. We just happen to know that it's not true. Uh, what does become the focus is that David is reckless with Ahimelech's life. He is reckless. Um, the lie was more of an attempt to protect Ahimelech from knowingly aiding and abetting a fugitive. So the lie's not so much the issue. The fact that David went there at all puts Ahimelech at risk. So David on the run in survival mode has been reckless with other people's lives. And that's really the point here. But as we'll see, it's clear that David knew at that time that Doeg, oh, he was a dog. Uh, he knew he would eventually tell Saul what had happened. He knew that uh, there was going to be trouble. But David, in his desperation, while in survival mode, he risked Ahimelech's well-being to preserve his own. He lied to protect him. He, he bent the law of love. When he lied to protect Ahimelech, he broke it when he saw Doeg and knew what was going to happen and went on with it anyway. 
David squeezed at this time. And he becomes a little bit reckless with other people's lives. This is oftentimes things that we do. Text says, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled, or that could be translated beat, on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as this madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen here that you brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Now, this is a strange story. Agreed? All right, good. If there were more youth here, I'd probably play it out, but I'm not going to. I'm going to spare you today. And my mouth's a little dry, so I don't know if I could muster the saliva I might need. Well, the whole point of this narrative, just so you know, it's, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to even use the word, but this is a, a form uh, that's classified as an apothem, okay? It's an apothem, and what it means is this. All of this narrative, the point of it, is what Akish says about David in the end. So we don't, we want to be careful not to allow this whole story play too much a part in the narrative. It's what Akish says about David in the end that becomes important and for the rest of Samuel. But I'm going to have to indulge a little bit in, in this story because it's kind of fun. So, um, you know, Psalm 56 is associated with the time when the Philistines seized David and Gath. So there's some insight for us in David's perspective. And remember, when he's writing the Psalms, he's looking back on this, okay? So he's not in the midst of it, because in the midst of it, obviously, he's fearful, right? But now that David is king and writing his Psalms, he kind of has a place to do that. He's looking back, and he's remembering God. And I want you to hear his heart here. He says, be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I'm afraid, which he was, I will put my trust in you, he says. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid, and here becomes key, for what can man do to me? He's got good perspective here. But at this time, he's afraid of this man while he's on the run, when he's running against the wind. He's not afforded the time to reflect and acknowledge the fact that this man can do nothing, so he is fearful. Um, and so what ends up happening is he fiends a madman. He pretends he's a madman. Now, uh, this, some people have said, you know, he acts like he's maybe uh, a crazy person, like maybe a prophet acts crazy sometimes. I mean, you might remember Saul was... Uh, naked prophesying, and that was something that a prophet, a prophet does sometimes. So prophets do some really weird stuff. So oftentimes they see a madman, they think, well, this must be a prophet. He's doing crazy things. So that's one option. Uh, some of the other options are uh, a madman is someone who's cursed under the uh, curses of the covenant. So sometimes the curses of the covenant would drive people mad, and they would act mad. So I'm just telling you some of the things that these people in the ancient Near East would be thinking. And then finally, and uh, this is kind of the 
import of the Akkadian of that root, madman, he's like a cornered animal or a woman who becomes very aggressive. And I didn't make that part up. I just want you to know. I couldn't make something like that up. But they had a word for it, and it was madman. So mama bear gets cornered, you better look out. This was the kind of madman. He would be kind of like, do you remember Steve, Stephen the Irishman in Braveheart? You remember him? Who says, I'm the most wanted man on my island. And the Shamish goes, uh, you mean Ireland? Ah, yes, it's mine, but I'm not on my island. Uh, and, you know, he's asking if they can kill English. And, and so William Wallace says, yes, Irishman, you can kill English. And he goes, well, then I'm in the right place. And, and uh, obviously, Seamus says, well, you're certainly a madman. And his response, and I want you to picture David here because I think this is where he was. He's like, <laughs> this is David. He's a madman, a warrior madman. You're welcome, guys. He's a warrior madman, okay? And he's probably not scribbling on the walls. He's probably banging on them. And think, remember, He's got the sword of Goliath with him, okay? And remember who he is. This is the Philistines. He's slayed Goliath, their great warrior. He's killed tens of thousands. It's a scary guy. So in his fear, look what he does. He postures, doesn't he? He postures that he should be the one who's feared, which, by the way, how did he defeat Goliath and all the tens of thousands? The power of, the God, of God, right? But here he is posturing because he wants to make a way for himself. Well, um, Akish has no need to risk any of these possibilities because all of them are bad for him. If he's a prophet, he's probably a prophet coming to prophecy against him. Not a good deal, right? If he's under the curse of the covenant, you don't want that guy around either. And if he really is a madman who's cornered, David's a scary dude. So Akish, you know... He's looking at it going, eh, I don't know if I want that guy around. Um, and so God's making deliverance for him. Um, but here's the real point. Already now, the Philistines themselves are recognizing David as a type of king. Now, that's important to this story. David, who's anointed king but not yet taken it, is already being recognized by foreigners that he is a king. Not just that. His escape is starting to foreshadow the many ways in which he will continue to escape from the clutches of who would be his enemies, such as the Philistines. And one of the things that's really important that this narrator is trying to show is his protection even from a foreign enemy by the hand of Yahweh. You see, when Yahweh is with you, not even your enemies can prevail over you. So here he is with his enemies, the ones that would probably love to get rid of him and here God is delivering him through them and that's really the important part of this story um, and it's interesting too this is expressed here in uh, Psalm 56 you have taken account of my wonderings and put my tears in your bottle are they not in your book then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call this I know that God is for me in God whose word I praise in the Lord whose word I praise in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? You see, David here, the man after God's own heart, even when he's cornered and acts like a madman, 
He, in the end, trusts in the Lord to rescue him. And in the end, he acknowledges, it is the Lord who rescued me, not my posturing to being a madman. The Lord himself is the one who rescued me. And this is a man after God's own heart. He acknowledges the hand of God, even amidst his own folly and blunders. Um, And you'll notice, too, um, he doesn't fear man. As he looks back, he realized the Philistines had no power over me. God, in the end, was the only one who had any power. And he's the one who delivered me. So I tell you, don't fear. Trust in the Lord as the man after God's own heart does. For what, man, what can man do to you? In the end, God is your deliverer. There is no other. Well, continuing on to the next place. Adullam, which means close place in Samuel 22. So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who is distressed and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. And so this is what happens. David's household is in danger because when Saul's seeking you, believe me, your household's in the sides too. And so they're escaping from Bethlehem. They're coming to him at the cave of Adullam. And there, other people are gathering to him, some 400 people. And they, they are described in a very particular way. They are in distress or trouble, which, by the way, this is said of people experiencing the horrors of siege warfare, which is some of the nastiest stuff you could have ever imagined. This is what it means to be distressed or troubled. It's a really serious thing. It's not like I'm stressed out over my job. It's kind of more like we don't have food, we don't have water, our kid's already dead, and what are we going to do because our death is coming very soon? That's the level of distress this is talking about. Um, People who owed money, they're the poor. The discontent are typically uh, people who are homeless or people who had suffered great loss. You've got to remember, this is a time when whole families would be wiped out. We don't really connect with that, but that's, what, that's who these people are who are discontented. It's not like, well, I don't like my job. No, it's more like everything I have has been destroyed. They're discontented. Um, and you'll notice in David's prayer while he's in the cave in Psalm 142 uh, that he also is numbered among the distressed. And... Uh, They're distressed that he's now captain over. Now, it's interesting, too, and I want to point this out. David, this king of David, who's like another king of David who will will come, I just want to point out, he has no place to lay his head. And the poor, the disenfranchised, the needy are all gathering to him in droves. And he's caring for his own as well, as one who's also helpless. I just don't want you to miss that because he is a picture of the, of the king of David who is also to come. So they probably should have recognized him had they recognized that he was going to be one who comes in keeping with the king of David who was before him. Uh, but in this Psalm 142, David writes, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I poured out my complaints before him. I declare my trouble before him. So what does David do when he's pressed? He calls out to the Lord. He said, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. Now, this is important. And when we get to the end, I want you to know this becomes the focal point, okay? Here David is in the midst of running against the wind in these terrible circumstances. And you can imagine how bad they would be. He calls out to the Lord is the first thing he does because he recognizes he has no control over it. But 
He acknowledges that even when I was overwhelmed, even when there was no way out, you know what I know, God? I know that you knew my path. I was never somewhere that you didn't know. I was never somewhere that you weren't divinely overseeing. Regardless of how overwhelmed I was, Lord, you knew my path. And this becomes important when you see how much worse this story gets. And yet how sovereignly God progresses his purpose. And, and you'll get to a sense of where David's coming from here. Um, I'm going to read a little bit more from 142. I cried to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. He wasn't thinking about his kingship as his portion. The Lord was his portion, and it gave him perspective. He says, give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. And I'll say this. A secret to being a person after God's own heart amidst running against the wind is first of all to acknowledge you have no hope of overcoming this yourself. You don't have the power. You're going to be hard-pressed to find the message in the scriptures that tell you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen. You'll see a lot of messages of you needing to acknowledge you don't have the power to overcome, which is what leads you to call out to one who does. Um... And uh, the Lord must be your refuge, your portion, and your deliverer if you're going to fare these winds of life. Well, I'm going to continue to Moab. I'm trying to get to the end, guys. There's really good stuff in the end, but we've got to cover a lot of text. So. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Then he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So... Quick note here, uh, the reason Moab, you might say, why Moab? You might remember that he's got an ancestral connection there. His great-grandmother, Ruth, was a Moabite. But also, I think this narrator's trying to show, here his family's taking shelter at Moab, yet another enemy of Israel. An enemy in this text not far distant. So 1447, we see Moab as an enemy. So here, God has delivered from his enemy, and now even taking his enemy to be a shelter for his. And this is the real point. Nothing is outside of God and what he's able to accomplish, even the most unlikely things. And that's what's trying to be shown here. Because remember the question is, where should we take shelter amidst these difficult places? Where should we take shelter? And what's being a case that's being made here is that God is someone who can provide a shelter for you even from your worst enemies. Continuing in the story here. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So there was provision from the prophet Gad, Gad to get David out of the stronghold and into Judah. But now we're coming to the focal point of the story. The story started in Nob, and you'll see where it's ending here. Where's it ending? In Nob. And this is where it was going all the time, and it's where I've been trying to get as quickly as possible. So let's see what happens here. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gabeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Here now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse... 
by the way, that's derogatory. When you hear him just call him son of Jesse, I want you to understand that is very derogatory. Otherwise, he would call him David, son of Jesse. I want to point it out because it's used a lot right here. So when you see someone just call him the son of something without their name, it's being used in a derogatory way. So you'll see Saul's heart here for sure. He says, um, Will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. I'm trying to get whiny. And there's none of you who's sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. (sighs) So there's Saul showing his true colors. He stands here, and it's interesting, the picture that they paint. He's like all the rulers of the world. He's standing on the cultic high places, and he's standing with his spear, ruling by fear and by might, with all of, who was attending him, by the way? The Benjamites, his family and only his family was attending him. By the way, also an indication that his numbers were probably dwindling. His support was dwindling, and yet... Where do we see David? Humble in a cave with all the distressed, the needy, and the poor gathering to him. While he himself was needy and distressed. Well, uh, Saul too, uh, he questions whether this son of Jesse will deliver on his promises. This is an important thing that you could miss when you just read this. So, um, oftentimes... When you're a king and you have a place of privilege, uh, you will enlist loyalty by the redistribution of fields and vineyards. So if you're loyal to me, I'll give you some lands. Uh, you know, I'm tempted to go to Braveheart again, but I'll give you... Now, now, let me ask you this. Did a king decide whose lands were whose in Israel's time? Or did God a sign whose lands were whose. And guess what? If you're giving this person land, you're actually giving them someone else's land. This is one of the abuses that Samuel warned about for kings. And notice, the fact of it doesn't really bother Saul at all. Matter of fact, he kind of assumes that's what you do when you're king. He's only questioned whether or not David can actually deliver on it. The other thing would be... uh, The appointing people as commanders, this is another abuse that was forecasted by Samuel in saying not to do this. And here Saul takes those for granted. They're part of his warp and woof of who he is. He's just like all the other kings of the world. And what he's saying to his people, which by the way, they're probably with him because they're family. And guess what? They're there to receive some lands. They're they're there to receive some Uh, commanding armies for them to be above. And what he's questioning them with is this. Is David going to be able to really deliver this? Now, if they were godly, they would have been like, didn't Samuel warn about leaders like you? Man, we need to get out of here. So you get to see Saul's heart there. He's a king just like all the other kings of the land. And his followers are are a lot like him. Um, Saul, at the end, he's a pragmatist. He doesn't care about what the Lord has said. 
He doesn't care about his commands. All Saul cares about is how he can get what he wants. And he's willing to do anything it takes to get what he wants for him and for his. It doesn't matter what the practices are. And he's so blind in this that he criticizes David for not being able to deliver in the same way. There's a great irony here. Um, but we got to be careful too. Sometimes we're in the midst of running against the wind. We can easily become pragmatists. Um, we can easily be willing to do whatever it takes to make it work. Right? Uh, in fact, we might even be like Saul and show preference to people. We might show preference to those in life we can gain something from rather than to the poor, the disenfranchised, people that could never pay us back. It's funny because Jesus talked about these things as well. But here we see Saul doing the very thing he was criticizing. But I'll tell you, if we're trying to make our way and we become in the midst of running against the wind with that same mindset, we'll start to do the same thing too. Everything we do will have a purpose for progressing our agenda that we have in our head, right? People merely become stepping stones to getting to where we see ourselves and our family. That's a dangerous place to be. And in the midst of running against the wind, it's easy. We don't even got to try. Our fallen hearts will continually move in that direction all the time. Well, Saul is a man who's caught in the clutches of his flesh, which centers on the self. And he thinks everyone's out to get him. And it's ironic. Saul thinks David's out to get him. And actually, Saul's out to get David. The opposite of what he thinks is actually true. And this is the deceit of sin. The deceit of sin spins a tale. And that tale is often the very opposite of truth. He's projecting who he is back onto David. And, and then responding to what he's projected. His fear has colored all of reality for him. This is the problem with fear. It distorts. And it's interesting too. In that fear, we tend to want to take shelter in, by the removal of perceived enemies, don't we? We're fearful. Who's the source or cause of that fear? How do I remove them as an enemy? And you know, we, we're not as gory and bloody as Saul, we're much more civilized now, so we'll use stuff like gossiping and backbiting. And we don't rob people of their lands, but we might rob them of their God-given dignity. That might be well within the scope of what we're willing to do in the midst of running against the wind. And so you see a danger here in this context, a danger that everyone has a proclivity to if they're not careful, particularly when overcome by fear. Continuing in the, store, in the story, then Doag the Edomite, see he came back up again, who was standing by the servants of Saul said, I saw the son of Jesse. By the way, what did he call him? The son of Jesse, right? Coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and his father's household, the priest who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. Did you catch it? Didn't call him Ahimelech that time, did he? Listen, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, my lord. 
Saul then said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, and that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? You see, Saul's fear colors every situation the exact same way now, doesn't it? It wasn't just his people in his court who were conspiring. Now, Ahimelech is too because, because he gave them. So they conspired because they didn't do anything. Ahimelech now conspired because he helped David out. He's a madman. He's not seeing reality right at all. And then Doeg, the non-Israelite, he's the one. He had no fear of God. And he offered a self-defense, and he blames, obviously, Ahitub. And he reports that he gave him provisions and a sword. And you might notice a new one comes up that wasn't in the story before, right? He says he inquires of the Lord for him. Don't miss it. This is probably the most important thing that comes about in this, so don't miss this one. And you'll notice, too, so inquiring of the Lord means he gave him a divine oracle. He got a word from the Lord and gave it to David to help him out. And you'll see in Ahimelech's defense This is the main problem here, okay? So are you ready? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? So his defense, first of all, is David is the most faithful of your servant. Number two, even the king's son-in-law. He's your son-in-law, Saul, who is captain over your guard. He's the head of the guard that's sworn to loyalty and is honored in your house because of all these things. He holds great honor in his house. So he's given a defense for himself by the reality of the situation. And then he said, did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? You'll notice what the primary accusation was. It's the one that Ahimelech actually is going to give a defense for. Is this the first time I've ever inquired on the Lord on his behalf before? You see, because this is the big issue here. Not the sword and the provision so much. Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father. For your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. Which, by the way, notice David's lies would allow him to say, I had no idea. The lie wasn't so much the big problem. It was the recklessness of David. And David's going to come to terms with that too. Um, and you'll notice that the oracle seeking is a big deal. Um, it's going to be a big deal too because of what happens here. And I'm going to push on to it. Um, the king said to Ahimelech, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death because their hand also is with David and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. His craziness extends to everybody now, which is really bizarre. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Interesting here, the Benjamites, they might have been willing to go along with the abuses of power so long as they were beneficiaries, they did know better than to put their hand against the Lord's priests. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And notice it keeps mentioning the linen ephod. The ephod was the way that divine oracles were given. So these men wore the linen ephod. They were men who could seek a divine oracle on their behalf, and they were slayed too. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. Now, 
this is important. I want to just point a few things out real quick. First of all, I want to point out that um, the reason, if you remember, Saul, was take, his kingship was taken away was because when it came to Agag in chapter 15, he wouldn't lay waste to everything, to all the sheep, to the animals. He wouldn't do it. He kept the good stuff for himself, even though the Lord had commanded him otherwise. And now I want to point something. So why did he do that? Because he wanted more for him, right? And now his little tender heart is offended. And so he's going to slaughter without the word of the Lord all the priests of God. And he's going to lay waste to them the way he was supposed to and was unwilling to in Agag. And you should see the depravity at this point. Saul is a man who is driven by selfishness, self-centeredness, and he's blind to all other things. A great danger for us. By the way, in the New Testament, this is what's called living according to the flesh. Living only in light of yourself and nothing else. And this is where Saul is. This is who Saul is. And you see it play out. So, pretty uh, intense story. Pretty crazy story. In the end it says, But one son of Ahimelech, the son of a Hittub named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite, that sorry dog, was there, it, that's the new Texas translation, that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. Now, I want to point something out. This is the big takeaway, guys, and this is the big picture. Is God worthy of you running to for shelter? Look at this crazy story. Look how it ended. 85 priests slain and David, the promised king, still in a cave on the run. Now, if I only took those circumstances to consider the question, is God worthy to run to for refuge, I might be able to answer, I don't think so. Right? Let's just be honest. Just like in your life, if you're only looking at a very small set of circumstances, and probably not even looking at those really right, you might be able to think God isn't the place to go to for refuge. It's real easy to start thinking that way. I just need to work harder. I just need to run harder into the wind. That's the answer, right? If I'll just work harder, then all this stuff will be taken care of. Notice the opposite of the man after God's own heart who acknowledges me running harder isn't the answer. <laughs> me running to the shelter of the Lord, that is the answer. But look here, it doesn't look like that might be the case. Well, I want to point out some very amazing things that have happened here. First of all, concerning the priests. There was, Eli was more faithful to his sons than he was the Lord. And the Lord cursed him. And the Lord cursed his family. And this is part of the fulfilling of that curse. But there was also a promise in that curse. You know what it was? that there would be one man spared that would not be cut off from the altar. The key to the altar was that's where God's presence was. That's where you could be led by the presence. And so God, while cursing them, promised one man will remain. And guess what happened? Abiathar escaped. The one remained. 
so that God can continue to direct his people. And I want to point out something really big here. This is the second that happened in the midst of all these terrible circumstances. You ready? And this one's huge. God has progressed his Davidic kingdom and his plan for salvation in monumental ways. So with Eli and his sons, the center of all cultic activity, the center of uh, where God was and all the priests served was in Shiloh. Now when they died, it moved to Nob. And now that all of them were slain and Abiathar comes to be with David in Judah... This was when all of the priesthood and all of the center of worship came to be associated in Jerusalem. God's moving huge pieces forward in the midst of all this. Not just that. The high priest is the one who would petition to the Lord and be able to give God's guidance to the king. And where is that high priest now? With the king all the enemies were already acknowledging with the king that all the displaced, the poor and needy of the world were running to, with the king who had no place to lay his head, who is in a cave, now the man of God, who is the voice of God for David, is with. They're together. God is leading David, and he'll lead him through all of these troubles while Saul continues his tactics and eventually will lose everything. So here in the midst of the worst circumstances, where David is now looking in retrospect, you can see what he sees, right? You can't tell what's going on in the midst of bad circumstances. You can't tell what's going on in the midst of running against the wind. Your spirit's overwhelmed within you, but you know what? God knows your path. He knows where you are. He sees the beginning from the end. And you know what? He's moving big pieces forward all the time. You feel like you're marking time, and he's making it. Is God a worthy refuge? Yes, is the resounding answer. Yes, certainly he is. I want to point this out about David too before we go. The man after God's own heart. Abiathar had no idea that David had an idea this was going to happen. And he comes and says rightly, Saul has killed all the priests. And what does David do? By the way, what Abiathar said wasn't untrue. Here's what the man of God does. Because he could have easily went like, yep, Saul did. Now you're with me, though. Instead, you know what he said? I'm responsible. Is basically what he said. I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. See, he knew in that day that he saw Doeg the Edomite, and he had an idea in his recklessness that something like this might happen. And so you know what the man of God does? He's not the guy that doesn't sin, first of all. The man of God, the man after God's own heart, is the one who, when he sins, he takes full responsibility and he confesses and he repents. Make note of that. This is what the man of God does. This is what the person after God's own heart does. They're not the one who's righteous. They're the one who's continually repentant. A very stark contrast to Saul, who just weaves a new story to make themselves right. I could go into that one all day long. There's just too many things here. In the end, I will promise you this. The Lord is worthy to be your refuge. Repent. Take 
a step back, acknowledge where you are running against the wind, call out to him, confess your sin, and put your trust in him. And watch him, and it might be in a long way away retrospect, deliver you and cause good for you. It might be so long that it's when you're resurrected looking back, but the day will come. I want you to hear David's final in, in his psalm, uh, when he's reflecting on Doeg the Edomite in Psalm 57, I believe it is. 57, 52, there it is. There's another little tag there. He says this, and listen. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. God did that, and he knew it. And I will wait on your name. See, he's professing. He's worthy to wait on. Wait and see. Don't make a judgment. Let your refuge be, be in him and wait and see his deliverance. For it is good in the presence of your godly ones. And our Lord too, this is the final word for you. He promises I'm with you even to the end of the age, even under resurrection. Hang on, run to the Lord. Let him be your refuge, your strength, and your deliverer in times of trouble.